and welcome to another episode of Free Lunch by the Peak, the podcast where we talk to people way smarter than us about the most important topics in Canadian business and economics. I'm your co-host, Taylor Scollin. And I'm Sarah Brightnika. So Sarah, one thing that we're reading a lot about these days are different types of landings. And you can really find like anyone to make any argument uh, about what's going to happen next. Like there's so many different forecasts and predictions out there about where we're going with inflation and interest rates and growth and employment and all these different factors. Um, and it's really hard to make sense of what the reality is on the ground right now. I don't really know how to make sense of markets in the economy right now, but thankfully we do know someone who does. Kurt Ryman is a managing director and member of the BlackRock Investment Institute and a senior strategist for North America. He contributes to the research coming out of the BII and delivers the team's macroeconomic and financial market outlooks through the U.S. and Canada. Kurt, thank you so much for joining us on Free Lunch. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Great to be here with you. So let's start at a very high level here. What is your opinion on where markets are sitting right now? We started off the year reversing the direction of 2022. So there's something has changed. The markets are, are taking a different direction. And I don't think it's just that there's a start of the year and investors are thinking about putting money to work. I think that's part of it. Um, there's a lot of money on the sidelines, but I think there had to be a reason. And most of 2022, I think we spent our time worried about that central banks were lifting interest rates, trying to really crush demand, I suppose, to get inflation down. And that would have the risk of creating a recession. And that's, you know, higher rates and worse economic outcomes. Uh, no surprise really then, I guess, that bonds and stocks did as poorly as they've done in, uh, in decades. This year, we've started off with a bit of a reassessment. Inflation seems to be coming down. Central banks are talking about pausing their rate hikes. And I think not even as much worried about recession or soft landing. My interpretation is that a lot of investors are now thinking there's no landing at all, um, that the economy is going to do just fine. So we started off the year with, uh, with bond yields falling and stock prices resuming their ascent. And I think that's something of a, you know, Goldilocks outcome. This idea that central banks can get inflation easily back to target, uh, without causing a recession. And that, uh, that's been good for a combination of assets. And it's been, as I said, it's been a mirror image, a reversal. Uh, of the momentum of 2022. Kurt, you've been a strategist for decades. So I'm wondering if to build a foundation for this conversation, we can talk about what someone needs to know to understand the Canadian economy. What are the forces that are at play here? Well, I think there's this piece of it being the Canadian economy being more uh, resource oriented. I think we have to always have that in our mind. Um, there is this openness and uh, dependency, if you will, on trade with the United States. And there's always been, I think, rightfully so, this perception that, you know, so goes economic activity in the U.S. Uh, perhaps there's, you know, similar outcomes in Canada. Um, 
I, you know, I think there are some differences that are starting to emerge that really interest me right now. Um, one of them is if you look at the labor force participation rate in Canada, it hasn't uh, been impaired by the pandemic, meaning there are people that are uh, coming back to work and there are just as many people working as a share of the population now as there were three years ago. And the reasons for that are that Canadians aren't retiring at uh, earlier ages like you see in the U.S. and there's more openness to immigration. That's a really big deal right now when you think about some of the scarcities that exist in the labor market. And so I, I think it's, it's, it's understanding that um, there are different uh, sector exposures like resources that matter. Um, there are uh, clearly ties to the very large U.S. economy. But there are some incremental changes that we should always be on the lookout for um, that are not trivial, that do matter, and that should guide our thinking about the Canadian economy and having that be a distinct view relative to what we might be seeing in the rest of the developed world. Hmm. Maybe we can get into some of the different scenarios for the Canadian economy that you you alluded to there. You know, we hear a lot of people talking about soft landings, hard landings, uh, no landing. Uh, what are people talking about when they talk about these things? What do they mean by a soft landing or, or a no landing scenario? I think the definitions have changed, um, in fact. So hmm. soft landing used to mean to me, uh, you know, so some, some concept of a soft landing was that inflation was elevated and central banks had to lift interest rates and in so doing, what they would do is they would bring the economy, which was operating above potential, back down. Ideally, uh, they would stick the landing, right? Although that wasn't always the case, but it was the idea that you could um, bring output back to its potential from above and you could bring inflation down at the same time. So it was this kind of divine coincidence of being able to achieve uh, full employment and price stability. That, that's my definition of soft landing. Um, it seems to me like this year, the definition has shifted. Uh, and I'm not, ex I'm not a hundred percent sure what the, you know, what the investor view of soft landing means, but I think it could mean, um, inflation back to 2% with only a modest or mild recession. So that's different because. It is implying that now the definition of soft landing contains some view of, an, of a recession. Whereas I think a hard landing before was the view that had the, the recession. Uh, no landing is almost like the, you know, that's the, like the perfect outcome. No landing is that inflation gets down to 2%, um, not only without a recession, but where growth just kind of stays hovering. Uh, at a, at a decent clip. Um, you know, I, I would, I would, I, I think, or at least the way that I'm charting the outlook from, from here is, uh, more of the, more of the, the market's new view of what a soft landing is. I, well, that's not exactly true either. Um, it's, it's different. A soft, so the, the outlook for me is one where we see a recession happening, uh, later this year as a result of what we've already seen in rate hikes to date. 
we don't need to see more. Um, and that inflation doesn't easily come back to 2% or whatever the central bank target may be, that it's a bit stickier higher. Um, so, so really, um, this idea of a soft landing, whatever the definition is, is a little too, uh, seeing the world through rose colored glasses. It's a bit still assuming that the world, um, macro, uh, space is operating, uh, the same today as it did, uh, pre pandemic. Um, we think there's been some pretty fundamental changes, um, not just because of the pandemic, but a whole range of issues that make it harder for inflation to come down, uh, to target and, and, and that it, it likely, um, comes down, but, uh, settles back at a higher level. And even then, um, a recession seems like our base case scenario, mild one, but nonetheless a recession. Can you talk a little bit about what some of those factors are that are making, in your view, inflation stickier, I guess, on the way down uh, that are maybe new? Yeah. Uh, so, right. So this this move lower, um, right, from let's say from 8% to 5%, I think is going to be a lot easier than the move from, let's say, 5% to 2 hmm. And the easy parts of the inflation fading away are... A lot of prices just aren't rising anymore. Some of them are falling. They're higher than they were, but in order to get sustained inflation, prices have to keep rising. They have to keep, the level has to keep moving up. That's really important to understand because we may not like the fact that we're paying more for eggs or blueberries uh, or gasoline, but as long as they're not rising at the same rate, it allows inflation to fall back. A lot of the supply constraints coming uh, into the reopening of the economy, a lot of those have been corrected too. You think about the ships that were lined up at the port of LA or the, um, the, the, the delivery times or the lack of goods on store shelves because all of us were gorging on goods. I think as we, as a, a lot of those have been, have been mostly cured, um, a lot of the growth and economic output has been just inventory replenishment. And we are shifting our consumption away from those goods that were in short supply into the services that we used to take for granted, like, mm-hmm. um, right, like getting our hair cut or bringing our clothes to the dry cleaner or whatever. Um, those are now functioning again. The tricky part and the hard part of, of getting inflation down, I think, you know, at least in the near term is a, is wages. We've had inflation rise more than wage growth. So wage inflation has been ex- in, in excess of wage growth and wage growth itself has been higher than we've seen in decades. So normally a great thing, but people's incomes aren't keeping pace with the change in the price level. And as we've seen over and over again, the job market just is showing as it being really quite strong, red hot in some are some descriptions. Um, a record low on or at least generational low unemployment rate, lots of job creation, job vacancies. So it seems reasonable for us to us that um that that workers will try to make up for some of the losses in what we call purchasing power um, over the past year and a half. Uh, and 
that's that's going to be truer, I think, in places. Is truer a word? Uh, that's going to be more true in places like the U.S., where uh, where there's been a decline in the participation rate, or there's been a decline in the supply of workers, partly because of aging, uh, uh, partly uh, because of maybe COVID cautiousness uh, and behavioral uh, changes. Uh, and that I think keeps an upward pressure on wages that makes it harder for inflation to fall back. Um, there are other though, there are other forces, um, you know, this, this one, I think is, you know, is a, is a short-term consideration that's also true over a longer time horizon, but thinking, you know, more structurally there's geopolitical concerns, right? Which, um, have in the last year led to. Uh, rises in prices and scarcities in important commodities. Um, that, that I think is something we have to think about. Also, when we, when we think about the reduction in carbon emissions, there's a price to that. Uh, that likely does keep inflation higher. It's not as high as it would be in the do nothing case where we have to adapt and there's stranded assets, right? That, that That's a much higher inflation environment, doing nothing at all. But doing something to bring down carbon emissions does involve uh, a price uh, and does, in our view, keep inflation elevated and harder to get back to that target of 2%. Taylor here with a quick interruption. Just wanted to let you know that we are coming up on the end of the month. And so we will be giving away one free merch pack to someone who leaves a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. All you have to do is go to Apple Podcasts, find free lunch by the peak, leave a rating and review, and then send us an email with either the name that you left the review under or a screenshot of the review, something so that we know it's you, to freelunch at readthepeak.com. And we will pick one lucky winner to send a peak merch pack. We've got some great stuff in there. And there's only like 37 people who have left reviews, so your odds are pretty good at winning. On the recession issue, what do you see as the factors driving that? Is it likely that we get a moderate recession because inflation is going to be so stubborn to get back into the bank's target range? What's the main causes that you think are going to uh, bring that about. Yeah, that's right. It It is about that stubbornness. And some of the good news stories of the year, uh, if we think about on, at least on, on an economic front is it's been, you know, the weather has been warmer in Europe, for example. And because of that, the energy shortages weren't as, um, as severe. And so natural gas prices have been able to come down and, uh, and, and the economy has, has, hasn't faced that, uh, you know, that, that, um, immediate fear of, of, of a rise in natural gas or other energy prices. Um, China's faster than expected reopening has put a floor under, under global economic growth. Might even, um, if we think about it, might even lead to higher prices for certain commodities because, of the fact that they're reopening and driving and flying and, um, and consuming more. Um, that's all good news, but it does make it harder 
for central banks that are trying to suppress demand to bring demand down. So it, it, it in fact makes the job more difficult. They have to raise rates more than might have been the case if these other sort of good things weren't happening. Uh, so, right. I think that's, that's, that's the trick is that it's, it's a, it's an effective tool. Raising rates can bring, uh, inflation back down to target. We're not saying that it can't. Uh, what we're saying though is that it works through the channels of the economy that are sensitive to higher interest rates. So, you know, think credit cards or mortgages or other areas of the economy that are going to be sensitive to higher rates. And eventually, um, you know, what, what happens is, is that the, the economic bite from raising interest rates takes hold and it's in the form of, uh, declining housing sales or, uh, housing starts or people having to direct more of their income from say going out to the movies or going out to dinner just to pay their mortgage. Um, if you, if you take that too far, then you have the risk of a more severe housing downturn in places like, for example, in Canada, where there's a, a high household debt as a share of income. So that's a consideration that central banks have to, have to think about that may not have been uh, as much of a trade off in the years before the pandemic. Um, this is a supply driven inflation. It's not, you know, it, it's not a, an overheating type of inflation. It's just that we don't have enough to be able to grow production and to meet output at the level that, uh, there's demand. And so central bankers have to bring demand down and, and in the process, um, bring the demand for labor down and in the process raise unemployment rates. Um, there's a cost and that cost is, um, really the piece that makes it difficult to get inflation back down to 2%. We don't think that central bankers will uh, accept the higher cost, the deeper recession that would be associated with getting inflation all the way back down to target. We've talked about so many different um, sectors of the economy that touch people's lives, which is, you know, we're seeing the, you know, the housing market kind of suffer now. We're still seeing strengthen the labor market while, you know, the price of groceries is kind of going up. And so I, I'm, I have a high level question about the, this idea of striking an equilibrium in the economy, right? So how do, how is the central bank to go about, you know, doing that? It just seems like everything's in such a delicate balance. So how is it that the Bank of Canada only has interest rates as a tool to manage all of this? Well, you know, it's the tool they have, uh, uh, to manage price stability. It's not, it's not really the only one, um, today. Uh, central banks do have and have been, uh, reducing the amount of bonds that they hold on their balance sheet. So that can have an effect, uh, on longer term and intermediate term interest rates as well. It's smaller, we think, but it still has an impact. Um, the, you know, I think what, what a lot of central banks are thinking about today is what happens if the rise in policy rates is too much and the economy gets into more trouble, inflation goes all the way down, uh, you know, below 3%. Maybe that's, you know, achieving one form of success. 
But if the, if the cost is economic damage, then what happens is that governments may feel the need to, uh, supplement the, uh, the, the livelihoods of Canadians or Americans or wherever that are feeling the pinch. Uh, we can look across the Atlantic to the UK last year as an example of this, where too high energy bills led the government to propose a tax, uh, basically a, a blank check to pay for household uh, energy consumption and a tax cut, which then led to a sharp rise in UK government bond yields, um, effectively making the Bank of England's job harder to bring about that reduction in demand and the reduction in inflation. So there's, um, you know, there, there's a certain trade-off, uh, not just within the economy. Like if you bring inflation down, there's a cost and output, but also if you're, if you're bringing inflation down with these supply constraints, it may create the economic damage that sows the seeds for spending, um, that is, uh, raising debt as a share of GDP and could potentially be perceived as unsustainable. Uh, and then you have higher long-term interest rates, which is again, something that I don't think central banks would necessarily want to see happen. So, um, being mindful of, uh, debt service, meaning the cost of servicing the debt, households, companies, um, governments, I think that's all relevant in a world where we have more debt today than we did uh, a few years ago because of the pandemic and more debt today because of um, the financial crisis just, uh, you know, um, 12 years before that. Um, so there, there's, um, there have been years, uh, maybe decades where there, you know, academics and policymakers and, and the bond market wasn't um, worried about too high debt. We're starting to see evidence that that's appearing again. And, um, and so we, we have to, I think the economic damage from raising interest rates does have a consequence for, uh, right, for, for longer term interest rates if it's seen as leading to a, uh, a, a period of, of debt unsustainability. Is that something that central bankers are looking at when they set their rates? Are they looking at the size of public debt and saying, well, if we keep rates high, this is going to become unsustainable or are they just focused on hitting that inflation target? I think right now the politics of inflation means they're, they're squarely focused on bringing inflation down. That, that's clear. Uh, in that type of environment, their, their aim is to make sure that inflation expectations don't become de-anchored because that's a problem too. And, uh, anybody who's, who's, faced um this rise in prices all of us have over this past year and a half uh understand the importance of getting inflation down and having it remain stable and that's what they're working towards it's just understanding that there it setting monetary policy is not monochromatic there's never just one outcome uh, you can't just bring inflation down to target without also thinking about the implications in other parts of the economy. It's a delicate balancing act 
that's even more so now in the inflation today is caused by supply disruptions and production constraints. It's very different. Um, and it, it involves a, a much deeper trade-off. The efforts to reduce inflation uh, back down to target, we think, have economic consequences. And uh, just just to say that prior to the pandemic, if you think about the, the, the macro economy, we were in a world of abundance. We were in a world where, uh, yeah, sure, we had an aging population and in certain places, the participation rate was falling, but it didn't really matter because we were opening supply chains to the rest of the world and we were bringing in workers from overseas and that helped to keep inflation down. It, it kept wages down. It made it difficult for workers to bargain. Uh, think about the satellites that we put into space that were able to observe resources below the ground that we never had visibility for. Uh, the, think about the, the, you know, the expansion computing power. I mean, all, all of this is growing the, the ability to produce and meet demand over time and it keeps inflation down. We're now in a world where I think it's defined more by scarcities. Uh, rather than abundance. It's more difficult to grow production. Uh, it's not impossible. Some cases, it just takes time. It takes uh, a range of new investment, or um, it may involve uh, certain degrees of automation. Um, there, there are some solutions, but, but we're, we're, we're thinking about this as uh, a world where we see more incentives to be self-sufficient economically, so think about national industrial policies. We have uh, more scarcities in resources because of the war in Europe. Uh, we have aging populations. And in some countries, that means a, a tight labor market is tight because there's just less supply of, peop of people available to do jobs. That's the, you know, hopefully I'm not, uh, you know, prattling on too long here, but just to make the point that getting inflation back to target may be harder and does involve consequences. And in that sense, yeah, I do think central banks are thinking about more than just their, their being mindful of getting inflation down to 2%. I have a question about uh, the relationship between the U.S. economy. It seems like, I mean, we're just kind of drowning in, in coverage about kind of like the U.S. CPI numbers as if they were our own. And a lot of this data, we're just kind of, you know, it's it's all around us. And so um, I'm wondering uh, at a high level, how does U.S. economic data impact what happens in Canada? And, and how does what the Fed does in response to that data impact us? Primarily, I think about this through the through the currency uh, and I'm sure it's, it's more than that. Um, but the, the two economies are going to face the similar, uh, I think increases in inflation that may come about as a result of rises in, 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 um, commodity prices. Because like for what, like, especially compared to Europe, I think it's important to note this. Um, like if we're doing this compare and contrast across regions, uh, you know, it would, the, the situation, um, last spring and summer with the spike in natural gas prices was really a, a uniquely European phenomenon where 
natural gas prices spiked by 10 times. We in North America didn't face that same pressure. It was it, it, the, the, um, the energy crisis in Europe in, uh, in 2022 and even into this year was as bad as what we saw and witnessed in the 1970s for Europe. But for North America, it was a, it was a garden variety rise in energy prices, not something that we would have liked, but not really remarkable, um, by historical standards. And that's sort of, you know, that comes down to natural endowments, um, uh, and, and, and the infrastructure that's built around that. The, um, the labor force is, is important. We've already discussed that. Uh, so I, I won't repeat it, but just to say that relatively speaking, I think Canada's, um, uh, in a more relatively abundant position with respect to, uh, labor because of more openness to immigration and people working longer. We've sort, we've sort of known that for a long time. Uh, you know, the demographic burden of aging societies. There's two ways you can deal with it, right? You can work longer or you can, or you can, uh, bring people in. And it seems like Canada's, uh, approaching this, um, really kind of head on, uh, and, and, and taking, taking it on board. Whereas the U S has, has moved in a different direction. So there could be, to your point, uh, thinking about the stickiness of inflation. It could be tougher, uh, in the U S than what we find in, in Canada for that, for that reason. And if so, then the Fed may end up raising rates more than the Bank of Canada raises rates over the course of this year into next year. Um, that has implications for the currency. And, uh, you know, it's, it, it's, it's not easy to, to draw straight lines because it's never just as simple as differentials and interest rates. But, um, I think in the near term, the loony could see some weakness if the Fed moves more than the markets expect and the Bank of Canada doesn't keep pace. Is that a problem? Not necessarily if it's a modest decline in the loony, but here's, here's the trick, right? And this should be obvious, but if, if the Canadian dollar weakens, that's just going to make it, uh, more imported price pressures, which then leads to higher inflation. Uh, which then brings about potentially, uh, rate rises down the road. Um, now, you know, structurally, uh, I happen to think that the loony has some, uh, tailwinds and it's related to some of the, the themes we've discussed, which is, um, if, if we're in a more, uh, geopolitically, uh, tense world and there's limits on availability of resources, then I think eyes are, are tilted towards Canada as a strong provider, uh, of, of these. And, you know, certain legislation that's been passed in the U S interest, interestingly, um, you know, supports the build out of electric vehicles and all of their parts in North America. And some of those components are going to be coming from Canada and there's investment that has to happen, um, in those in order to bring that about. Um, and then on, on, on carbon reduction, you know, the fact that Canada has a carbon price or some derivative of that, uh, provincially to bring about reductions in CO2 emissions and has, um, 
uh, sort of derivative technologies in resources that could be applied to reducing CO2, like, for example, carbon capture and sequestration or blue hydrogen. I think that's a, a really interesting investment uh, theme or, or, uh, or picture that's developing that um, would support investment in Canada, which would be supportive of the Canadian dollar over a bit of a longer mm. term. So I, I think that's something to think about when it comes to, you know, the differences and the contrasts, um, right, between, between North and South, uh, between the U.S. and Canada. Well, you mentioned geopolitical tensions, which reminds me uh, that you alluded to the impact of China's reopening on all of these things that we've been talking about, and particularly inflation. And I'm wondering how you look at that. Do you see that as a inflationary force because suddenly there's more demand for a bunch of commodities on the global market or is it potentially disinflationary if we have much more production online in china uh increasing the supply of various goods how do you think that nets out i I think it's more on the inflationary side than it is on the on the disinflationary side because if you if you look at the data um chinese exports were were running pretty well through the pandemic because a lot of the factories remained open. Um, you know, people could quarantine, if you will, at work. So we were, um, and, and, and we were gorging on goods, right? During the pandemic, because most of the services economy was shuttered. Uh, so now that we've mostly reopened, we're, we're tilting away from imported goods back towards domestic services and uh and and china will be demanding more of the commodity inputs into growth and i think of that not necessarily as 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 deflationary if you will but more as a a a helpful floor underneath certain commodity prices Um, when when the world was concerned about recession risk globally uh, but particularly, we were worried about potentially a recession in Canada and in the U.S. And China hadn't reopened. Uh, we saw commodity prices fall back. Copper, oil, um, you know, important industrial inputs. With the, with the reopening of China being as swift as it is and, um, and faster than many, uh, than many economist estimates, that that means that there's demand in the world, uh, even though there may be some slippage in developed market economies. And I think that's helpful for when you're thinking about, um, about your investing framework, uh, right? If you're, if you're getting inflation from energy or if you're, uh, if, if your floor for energy is, is higher than it was, um, and China's reopening, there could be a slight move higher in energy prices, but ultimately we're talking about, you know, companies that are generating high rates of free cash flow. They're, um, you know, they, they're not chasing new production as aggressively because of concerns about, uh, stranded assets related to the, the net zero carbon transition. And, uh, and their balance sheets are pretty clean because very few companies would really lend to them. Very few banks would lend to them uh, during uh, the end of the commodity super cycle. So, you know, there are some sector um, 
sectors that, that actually turn out to be, you know, quite okay from our point of view, uh, from an investment framework that, um, you know, tie into this China reopening and a bit higher inflation and some of the scarcities that exist in the world. No, we have to uh, let you go soon, but I'm, I'm hoping we could talk about what this all means for personal investments, right? Like how are investors responding to the current market conditions? What is BlackRock recommending they do in terms of allocating their savings? Well, if I could be, uh, if I could overgeneralize, uh, last year, 2022 felt like a year of paralysis, um, right? The, the market's both stocks and bonds were down uh, high teens, uh, low 20%. And we just haven't seen that before. Usually when stocks fall, bonds do well or offset some of the losses that you have in the portfolio. And that didn't happen last year. Both of the bedrock pillars of any portfolio were both down and they were down in a similar order of magnitude. So, uh, so cash, even though it lost to inflation, held up better. So, um, right. So cash was, was the, you know, the, the key, uh, way to, to, to preserve wealth. Um, this year is a year, I think, of being more opportunistic, being more constructive, even as we've talked about recession and potential for rates to rise. I think there are more opportunities emerging. And we don't have to stretch for risk in order to get them. Um, you know, for example, um, you can now get a yield on two-year government of Canada bonds that is, you know, somewhere between uh, four and four and a half percent. Uh, you know, that is something we haven't seen in over a decade. Um, it's not terribly exciting, but uh, it's a way to gain some incremental income. Um, another would be, for example, investment grade corporate bonds um, is an area that we like. Even with a recession, we don't think that there's going to be a sharp rise in default rates because it's likely to be mild. That whole question about, you know, soft landing feels like it's coming back again. But uh, the the piece of the soft landing that didn't work for me was this decline in inflation down to 2%. So if it settles out closer to three and, and not closer to two, then from an investor uh, point of view, we should be having some protection in the portfolio against this higher level of inflation, which wasn't something we really talked about much before the pandemic, um, right? If, if anything, inflation was failing to meet the 2% target from below, not from above. So I think that having things like inflation-linked bonds, uh, to a lesser extent, equities stocks over the long term, because they adjust for the price level, are, are things we should be talking about. But I, I was pointing out energy as a sector that I think would do well uh, in a higher inflation environment. Uh, I think financials would tend to do well in a world where interest rates are, are, are biased higher. So these are some of the, you know, sector positions that, uh, as well as, um, asset classes that, that we've been talking to investors about and that we think are, you know, opportunities ranging from the, you know, the, the very, uh, lower risk end of the spectrum in, in short term government bonds to something 
you know, more risky, like, uh, investment grade corporates or, or, or energy companies. So I noticed in that list that you just gave, uh, conspicuously absent was uh, tech and it's been crazy roller coaster for tech over the past couple of years. Um, but for a long time, it seemed like these, um, high growth, low earnings or no earnings stocks in the tech sector were really where it was at. Um, and I'm wondering if you think that that phenomena is, is that a permanent casualty of the rate hike campaigns that we've just been through? Or do you think that that's something that could come back again if rates uh, end up, you know, if the, if the central banks end up cutting later this year or early next year? Yeah, so you've drawn on a very interesting relationship and it's not spurious. It has, there's a reason why these, I, I believe you refer to it as, as unprofitable tech uh, and, <laughs> and some of those. So what is unprofitable tech? It's a, it's a, you know, you're buying a company on the hopes that at some point in the future, you're going to get this outsized return or cash flow, right? Because they're, they're doing something amazing that's going to revolutionize the world and we're not going to be able to live without it. Eventually it'll become a stable, but right now it's a, it's, it's a growth sector of the economy. And, um, anything that has a long dated cash flow is considered highly interest rate sensitive. So, you know, think about the difference between a 30 year bond and a one month T-bill, you know, in one month you get your, 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 your money back in a T-bill. The other, you have to wait 30 years and the cash flows exist over a 30 year time horizon. So the interest rate sensitivity of a long term bond is much higher than a short term bill for the same reason that, uh, you know, unprofitable tech or speculative tech is a long duration cash flow. It's a, it's a out in the future cash flow that's very interest rate sensitive. So should, should it surprise us that if interest rates fell to basically zero, and in some cases they were negative, that these companies would do well? Uh, it doesn't, it's not surprising. It's not surprising in hindsight for sure. And, uh, as rates have risen and, and this segment has, has taken it on the chin. Now, of course, we've started the year with a reversal of that. And I think a lot of questions would be, you know, does this return to favoring, you know, growth oriented companies? Is that a staying power or should we be maybe cautious on that? And I would say, we're, we're more on the cautious side and that's more on the, on the call it the, the, um, you know, the, the angel investing or the, the hopes and dreams of a, of an eventually profitable company. Um, I would say we think, you know, because we think interest rates are headed higher, that's a headwind for, for that part of the tech universe, but we can't just treat all tech the same. There are a lot of, as, as I mentioned before, a lot of businesses within tech that are, that are staples, there are things we can't live without. Try living without your iPhone for a, over, for more than, you know, a few hours and you'll get my point. But it's, you know, technology in many ways are the modern era's equivalent of paper towels. So 
um, we've got to keep that in mind. And that to me means that areas uh, within tech, like uh, software or importantly, cybersecurity, which stands out at a time when we're worried about geopolitical risk, are, are these are you know either bedrock consumables or uh, investments that companies are going to be making. So um, I don't want to be you know indiscriminately uh, souring on tech. I just think we have to be more selective within within tech. And so buy growth, but do it at a price that's that, that it's, that's reasonable. Um, not, not one that you're, you know, paying a, uh, you know, a, a, a multiple that's, um, in the stratosphere for some future earning stream, which may come to pass or may not. That, Kurt, that was, that was brilliant. Thank you so much for yeah, taking that was the fantastic. time to, to chat with us. That was really good. And I uh, appreciate um, you taking the time to do it while traveling. I know that's not easy. Well, that was a fascinating conversation with Kurt. I liked where we landed towards the end of that conversation about how the bond market uh, deserves a little bit more attention and excitement these days. And I, I mean, I don't know what to make of it. I don't know if the Wall Street bets guys and girls are going to you know, be hopping on the bond market next, but it, it does seem like for investors, that's an area that people should be paying attention to. Yeah, it is interesting how the... At least in in Kurt's view, it sounds like there's been a shift back to a lot of fundamentals, I guess, in in how investors are looking at this market away from the super high growth uh, parts of the economy and more back towards things that like actually make money and you know boring stuff like that. So that was interesting to hear about. Um, it was also interesting to get his take on you know how the different scenarios that people have been talking about for the last year or two have shifted a little bit. Like there's almost a little bit of moving the goalposts as to what constitutes a soft landing and a hard landing. We were talking about the soft landing for a long time as if it was going to be, you know, inflation gets back to target and there's only a mild recession. And that's changed now as people's I don't know, I guess vibes about the economy have have changed as well to like, oh no, everything's going to be totally fine uh, and let's all pile back into you know, tech and these other parts of the market that depend on high growth and low interest rates. And I don't know, maybe that's not such a wise move right now. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of definitions floating around that people can't quite agree on. I'm, I'm still not sure that we have a consensus on what defines a recession, although I think we've fallen into... Um, an understanding that there is a difference between, I guess, the technical recession and what kind of feels like a recession to any in individual that you ask. So um happy to get some clarity there and a definition from Kurt for what constitutes a soft landing. And also happy that he was able to shed some light on an area that I'm particularly interested in and don't know a lot about, which is really how what the Fed does and what's happening in the U.S., impacts us and mm, yeah. it seems like there's so many forces at play it seems really complicated and difficult to wrap your head around it too right like if we're if we're on these right paths that are you know starting to diverge it seems like um that's that could be bad for a lot of things but i think kurt's simplification of like okay well you know if 
the Fed starts to kind of out hike us, um, it's really you should be looking at the currency and then where that causes a problem um, is is really just in that, you know, lesser purchasing power with a devalued loony and then that kind of contributing to inflation. So his description there, I mean, as always uh, with him was super helpful, but increasingly like something I hope we stay on is is learning about, okay, how are these different, you know, how is how is movement from the Fed? How is data from the U.S. going to impact us in the, in the long term? It was also interesting to hear about some of the differences, I think, between our economies as well, like the bit about labor force participation in Canada and how we're not seeing the same issue there as they are in the States and how that might be disinflationary. Um, so I don't know. There's These are such complex topics, and I felt like that discussion really underscored how many different levers and moving parts there are in the economy and the systems that drive things like inflation and interest rates and employment. You know, you push on one and you get an outcome at the end that goes through three or four different steps in a a long chain of different cause and effect. So makes it really difficult to predict what's going to happen next. Well, I think that's a good place to leave it. What do you think? Let's leave it there. This has been another episode of Free Lunch. I am your co-host, Sarah Bartnika. You can find me at Sarah Bartnika on Twitter. And I'm Taylor Scollin. You can find me at Taylor Scollin on Twitter. And you can find more episodes of Free Lunch by The Peak wherever you listen to your podcasts. And make sure you check out our daily business newsletter. You can find us at readthepeak.com. Make sure you subscribe. We talk about, you know, all the themes we cover in this podcast as well. So make sure to subscribe and we will see you back here next week.